From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. The best way to support the show is by booking a Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacation with Dreams Unlimited Travel. Get a free no-obligation quote today for your next dream vacation at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 284 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Dis historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic, Michael. How are you? I am doing well. We, we were talking earlier that, you know, we've seen a little sun, and that's that's nice. It just is making everyone out here so happy. Yeah. <laughs> Although no, rain that, is coming. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, we're we're in a interesting place here in Orlando where we're having like we'll have a couple days of just pure ugliness, and then it's opening up, and we're talking like blue sky uh, days with no clouds whatsoever, and it's it's a uh, really nice. So I uh, I. Everyone that's coming in for the Princess Half Marathon weekend uh, this weekend, I hope I hope they're going to have good weather for yeah. all of that running. None of which I'll be doing. Uh, that's uh, not for me. I'm not not donning my tutu and going out for a run this weekend. <laughs> so, but you have a, my favorite festival is starting up in a few days, and that's the Epcot Flower and Garden Festival, which actually is going to connect to what we're talking about today uh, in a way. So, um, so that's something to look forward to. It is. It's uh, definitely an earlier start. I mean, not, not super early, but I feel like it always is right in the first couple days of March. So to be uh, at the end of February after so many, so many years of it kind of taking place in that March, it, it it feels, it feels like we're really jumping into it early. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the festival of the arts just barely ended. So uh, another point with Epcot where you can't just let a little time pass in between those festivals, but I'm, I'm okay with it. Like, like we always say every year on everything we ever do surrounding flower and garden festival, it just makes Epcot so beautiful. It's Mm -hmm. truly the the most spectacular time of the year in that park in terms of the ambiance and and, and the energy running throughout all of the uh, the greenery areas so uh, it's uh, it's a welcome addition to come back to to Epcot you know nothing against the arts but i also i also like greenery i like topiaries i like i like all of that good stuff yeah me too me too so a little more about that later on. Um, we announced at the, at, at the end of last week's show that we're having, um, we're planning for a Q&A show. It's been like a year or so since we have done that. And so we wanted to announce it at the beginning of this week's show in case folks, you know, miss the announcement at the end. So Craig, do you want to talk a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, 
We, again, are doing a question and answer episode coming up here, and we are already taking your questions. There is a post pinned to the top of our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Diz Unlimited. So if you head over to that page, that's going to be the first post you see. And there you will be able to leave any questions that you might have for those episodes. Usually we get enough questions to do uh, two solid episodes and it can be about the history of the theme parks. I mean, theme parks in general, anything about them. Uh, Walt Disney, the Imagineers, uh, Walt Disney movies, books, uh, TV shows, music, anything really. Uh, Just uh, if it surrounds Disney and you feel like asking a question about it, just fire away. You'll, you'll be able to do that in the comments section there. And uh, the only thing we ask is that don't ask us questions about what would Walt think about this and that. We don't have an answer for it because we are not standing next to Walt to be able to ask him <laughs> those questions and uh, try to try to think of questions that don't necessarily uh, get answered easily with just a yes or a no try to try to put a little extra thought into it and uh give us give us some room that we can really open up and and explore the questions so uh that's kind of the only parameters with it and otherwise you know just just get over there facebook.com slash diz unlimited uh, leave us questions and hopefully hopefully we answer yours in a little bit here Yeah, and if you had submitted a question in the past and we never got around to it, this is a good chance to resubmit that question, and uh, and then we might be able to get to it this time. Exactly. There's no such thing as a bad question, just questions we don't have time for and questions we do have time for. (laughs) (laughs) There are no bad questions, only bad answers. That's what I thought you were going to (laughs) say. That is also true. We can come up with some really bad answers, but we try not to. We try to give it our best. So anyway, so we're looking forward to to seeing what you um, ask us. Well, in this episode, we are doing another uh, sort of edition of our Windows on Main Street series, in which we talk about those who were honored with a window on Main Street or elsewhere in the parks as this tradition expanded beyond Main Street. Most of these windows honor those who made significant contributions to the parks, with the exception of Disneyland Paris, whose windows also bear the names of characters from Disney films and television shows. The names usually appear as fictional business people and may reflect their contributions to the park, hobbies, or other interests. Marty Sklar once said, to add a name on a window today, there are three requirements, only on retirement, only for the highest level of service, respect, or achievement, and on agreement between top individual park management and Walt Disney Imagineering, which creates the design and copy concepts um, text. For many of us, We are at the time of year when, weary of the winter weather, we are looking forward to the comforting warmth of spring weather and the cheerful flowers and blooming trees that accompany it. One of my favorite Walt Disney World events, the Epcot Flower and Garden Festival with its brilliant gardens and topiaries, is a springtime delight. Guests can fill up much of their day at any Disney park enjoying the gardens that are as much of the storytelling as the architecture and attractions. 
And the person we have to thank for much of this is Morgan Bill Evans, who we are talking about this week on Connecting with Walt. Morgan Evans, better known as Bill Evans, was born on June 10, 1910, in Santa Monica, California. His first botanical classroom was his father's three-acre garden that was filled with exotic plants, including 150 varieties of hibiscus collected by his father. Bill joined the Merchant Marines in 1928, and during his assignment on board the SS President Harrison, he traveled the world and gathered exotic seeds for his father's garden from the West Indies, South Africa, Australia, and other tropical lands. Upon his return, Bill studied at Pasadena City College before attending Stanford University, where he majored in geology. Regrettably, his education was cut short due to the Great Depression. In 1931, he helped turn his father's three-acre garden into a business by wholesaling the rare and exotic plants they grew to nurseries. In 1936, Bill and his older brother Jack entered into business with Jack Reeves to establish Evans and Reeves Landscaping, which they ran until 1958. Bill enjoyed importing and propagating exotic subtropical plants, shrubs, vines, bamboos, and trees. Their nursery was so beautiful that it became a weekend destination for gardeners. Their nursery changed the landscape of Southern California. We can thank Bill for all the South African flowering coral trees that line San Vicente Boulevard in Brentwood. If you've seen the palm trees and tropical landscaping hiding the oil derricks off the islands of Long Beach, you're looking at Bill's handiwork. The rare and exotic plants sold by Evans and Reeves soon caught the attention of Hollywood celebrities, including Greta Garbo, Clark Gable, and Elizabeth Taylor. And it would not take long before a new customer would change their lives forever. Walt Disney had purchased roses from Evans and Reeves Nursery for the Disney family home in the San Fernando Valley. Jack Evans had later struck up a friendship with Walt Disney through a mutual friend. In 1952, Bill and Jack were invited to the Holmby Hills home of Walt and Lillian Disney to talk about landscaping the grounds of their new home, including the gardens surrounding Walt's miniature railroad, the Carrollwood Pacific. Walt was so pleased with their work that when it came time to start work on Disneyland in 1954, he hired Bill and Jack to landscape his new park. Recalled Bill, we landscaped all of Disneyland in less than a year, with a maximum of arm waving and a minimum of drawings. Walt described his idea of Disneyland to Bill and Jack as an outdoor entertainment facility where the adults would have every bit as good a time as the children. He wanted a lot of green plants to separate his park from the Coney Island amusement park format. This was to be a park that would be clean and beautiful and colorful and a very pleasant place to be. Bill and Jack kept all of this in mind when they worked to create a green frame around all the adventures and attractions that the imagination of Walt and his team brought to life. 
The first thing Bill and Jack did was to superimpose a drawing on an aerial photograph of Disneyland and work to salvage as many of the orange and walnut trees on the property as possible because each tree represented about $500. Whenever the grade remained at the same elevation, they could keep the trees. If they raised or lowered the grade, the trees had to be removed. They would then selectively remove trees. When Disneyland opened, a lot of the original orange trees remained. Are there any any more? Because no. I don't think I've, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen any orange trees no. walking around Disneyland. So, I mean, if there was perfect place for it would have been the uh, the the queue of Soren back when it was, you know, Soren over California. But otherwise, there's not really room for it. No, there w- they did plant some orange trees when they redid Tomorrowland. What was it mm-hmm. I, in the was it eighty four when you know when rocket rods and all of that started, and they wanted to have edibles in gotcha. there. They planted orange trees in the front entrance area. Honestly, they they couldn't keep control of it at this point. Like even if they planted them around like the Grand Californian or Disneyland Hotel, it guess would be doing everything they could to to pick the oranges out of the trees <laughs> and eating them. I mean, I guess that's the purpose of them, but uh yeah, that that would that would get out of hand real quick, I'm sure. Yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> now they also kept a grove of windbreak eucalyptus trees and you can see them behind City Hall and Main Street separating it from the Jungle Cruise. Even in the early stages of Disneyland's development, when it was just a series of sketches and plans, Walt Disney was very much aware of the importance of landscaping in his new park. Today, park guests might find it hard to imagine there was once nothing to see but rows and rows of orange trees. These were removed so the earth-moving equipment could be moved in to reshape the land. Walt wanted his park to be an escape from the cares of the present as guests entered a world of nostalgia, fantasy, and the future. An important step in achieving this was to create a 20-foot berm of earth surrounding the park to block any view of the 20th century from entering the park. This separation was increased with a dense planting of trees and shrubs on top of the berm, which now formed the horizon for many views within Disneyland. To plant the trees on top of the berm was a challenge back in 1954 because hydraulic cranes didn't exist. They had to use a regular front-loading tractor and rig a couple of pieces of water pipe in a chain, then put a handle on the front of the tractor to plant the trees. I'm always amazed how how they were just able to jerry-rig things back in the day to to achieve what they needed to do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure there was uh, there was regulations and uh, special guidelines you were probably supposed to follow, but uh, not not as strict as today. Yeah, uh, and, and they didn't have the insurance companies breathing down there. Exactly. Too, yeah. So when so. everyone wonders why it takes so long to build anything today, it's it's because you just can't do it like you used to be able to do in the past. And, uh, and you know, it, it makes it even harder when you're talking about areas where there's actively 
guests at. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I know that's going to come up more and more in the future as Universal continues building their new park versus how Disney, uh, Dis- Walt Disney World and, and Disneyland build theirs. But look at something like Tiana's Bayou Adventure that's flying along. And part of it is because they can get to that attraction really without impacting guests at all. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a different world we live in now for sure. Oh, that's that's right. Those are good points about now there's more regulations and yeah. things. And back then, there probably weren't any. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure if people got hurt on the job site or whatever, they probably just brushed it off. And now, you know, it's it, you're looking for the that claim. You're looking for the lawsuit. You're yeah. looking for all of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very true. Well, then the landscape department came in and transformed the barren site into jungles, forests, gardens, and lawns. First came the full-grown trees with their roots packed in heavy boxes, some weighing up to 22 tons. Then the smaller trees, shrubs, vines, and irrigation systems were installed. Shortly before opening day, the flowers already in bloom were planted, and the grass was unrolled like carpets to create fully established lawns. From the beginning, Walt insisted on having plenty of trees to provide shade for guests. Disneyland's needs soon exhausted the available stock from commercial nurseries. As the stock was depleted, Bill turned to old gardens and estates, sometimes hundreds of miles away, to purchase trees and plants. As the landscape budget dwindled, Bill salvaged full-grown trees from the paths of Southern California's projected freeway routes. Bill said they literally snatched the trees from the jaws of the bulldozer the day before they were to be demolished. They would then box them up and send them to Disneyland. Bill could walk about the park and identify which trees came from the Santa Monica Freeway, the Pomona Freeway, and so on. The beautiful Queen Palms on the Jungle Cruise came from the Santa Ana Freeway. And I know I've heard stories of where um, Bill would just go, there would be people would would get a knock on the door and Bill, they would open the door and it's Bill Evans wanting to purchase the full grown tree that was growing in front of their house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's a great story i mean it's it's hard to sit here and think about that even that they could exhaust all of their their options and had to resort to that going around to other people taking them from where future construction was happening like i, I mean it, it shows still in that park with how green and lush and beautiful it is but the fact that they could need so much that they just exhaust all their options that's that's wild yeah. And Walt wanted it, you know, he wanted the park stage ready on day one. So he did not want baby trees. Yeah. He wanted full grown trees on day one. And that provided even more of a challenge for Bill Evans. So that's, that's why he was knocking on people's front doors and, you know, hunting down the freeway, um, you know, path, you know, yeah. the routes oh, to go exactly. after these trees. And the mindset now is, well, you know what, we can we can plant the trees while they're still young and, you know, scatter some some more mature trees in there, too, and plant life. And eventually it'll all grow into something beautiful. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that method takes a lot longer. So I, th- I think they were smarter with uh, how they were trying to do it originally. Yeah. 
Well, and and now the parks they have tree farms where yep. they're growing the trees so that then they they do they do have full grown trees ready to bring on stage. Yes, they do. And uh, you know, if you get lost on Walt Disney World property, you can definitely see those out in uh, uh, over here on my coast. Yeah. Now, Walt insisted on the Disneyland Gardens having year-round color. The landscape department creates flower beds at three-month intervals, always in bloom, but displaying different varieties each season. Some might consider Adventureland's Jungle Cruise the crown jewel of Bill Evans' landscaping talent. And said Bill, what we endeavored to do was to create what the armchair traveler might envision as a jungle experience. We picked out material from Brazil, material from Africa, material from India and Asia and Malaysia, and pushed it all together. It's all quite compatible in the sense that it all has that lush and vigorous vigorous growth. Really might have been a quite showy botanical exhibit. What we attempted to do in planting this jungle was to make it look as if we had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. And they were completely successful with this. And I feel like, you know, I've I've never gone into the jungle. I've I've seen photos and obviously videos and, and a lot of a lot of documentation on it. But I, I don't know my my perception of what jungles could look like actually is very much inspired by Disney and by the Jungle Cruise. So I think I think they achieved it. Oh, mine, too. Mine is because I grew up with Disneyland at a very early age. Yeah, what I think of a jungle is the Jungle Cruise and the movie The African Queen. Yep, <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> so, And in a real jungle, you can travel for days with the scenery not changing very much, with maybe one or two species of vegetation. Bill wanted to capture this and get a variety of textures and effects using palms, tree ferns, and philodendrons. He also used giant bamboo, even though it isn't typically found in a jungle. But guests aren't aware that bamboo isn't tropical, but it provides texture as it's interspersed with all the material from Brazil, Africa, India, Asia, and Malaysia. So Bill combined it all together to give the jungle a lush, vigorous growth, and because they were working with a tight budget. Some of the original orange and walnut trees were utilized around the park. Several of the orange trees were planted in the Jungle Cruise, and the landscape team had to be diligent in picking the oranges off the trees, so they did not give the Jungle Cruise skippers the opportunity to crack jokes about seeing oranges as they came around the bend. Bill and his team covered... Um, covered the trees with all kinds of tropical vines. And the vines grew so vigorously, they ultimately killed off their host trees. Harper Goff was the art director for the Jungle Cruise, and he had the idea of inverting some of the walnut trees to get a mangrove effect, onto which Bill Evans grafted the top half of an orange tree. And it was a good illusion. As time went on, these trees were replaced, Bill would later call his creation the best darn jungle this side of Costa Rica. Other orange trees were planted along the route of the stagecoach ride. Bill's team also had to pick the fruit off these trees to maintain the theme of the Old West. By the time Bill got around to landscaping the back berm, he had run out of money and plant material. 
When Bill told Walt, Walt responded, I notice you have some head-high weeds out there. Why don't you put some jaw-breaking Latin names on them? That's exactly what Bill and Jack did. Bill remembered, Walt got such a kick out of it that he mentioned it at the cast celebrations for the 10th anniversary of Disneyland. If you think the soil at Disneyland must have been rich and fertile for Bill and Jack to plant gardens and jungles, you'd be wrong. The soil was all sand. According to Bill, it was almost ball-bearing sand. There was no soil, just sand. They poured lots of liquid fertilizer onto it, and over the years, with lots of water and liquid fertilizer in the Southern California climate, they were able to get good growth. Bill had to occasionally move large trees from one location to another, but due to their weight and size, could not move them by boxing up their roots and transporting them. Bill devised an innovative method when they had to move a large coral tree in Adventureland that would have weighed about 20 tons if they had boxed up the roots and soil. Instead, they lifted the tree and propped it up so it wouldn't fall over. Using a fire hose, they washed all the soil from the roots. Then they inserted a steel pin through the trunk to provide a handle, hooked a crane onto it, removed it from its location, and replanted it in its new home. And so this became pretty typical for the large trees. And when we did our series on the Magic Kingdom, you might remember, this was how the Liberty Tree in Liberty Square was moved uh, uh, from one location in in the uh, on the property, the Florida property, over to Liberty Square. Yeah. I, I would have loved to have seen them doing this all the way back in the day. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's fascinating to hear about it. I can only imagine what it would have looked like to uh, to to be there, seeing it all in action. I know, I know, because must have been slow going. Oh, well, yeah, I have to imagine. <laughs> I mean, you can't kill the thing. If you do, that kind of defeats the entire purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Today, none of the original orange and walnut trees remain at Disneyland. There is only one living tree that was on the property before Walt acquired the land, a Canary Island date palm. And this is the story of the tree according to Bill. Planted in 1896 by an early rancher, it was a stalwart and revered resident of his front lawn, admired by three generations of children and adults. One member of the family was married beneath it. When the owner of the land sold his acreage to Walt Disney in 1954, he requested that this venerable palm be preserved. Walt was more than happy to oblige, but since the tree stood in the middle of Section C of the projected parking lot, he ordered that it be carefully bald, lifted tenderly from its old home, and trundled all 15 tons of it to Adventureland. Today, that ancient palm that is known as the Dominguez tree can be found near the former Indiana Jones Fast Pass kiosk. It's the second oldest living thing in Disneyland. The oldest is a three-foot-tall Italian dwarf Bolander pine in Geppetto's village of the storybook land Canal Boats. So, And it's the Dominguez tree because it's the Dominguez family that Mm -hmm. was the owner of the property this tree was on. I believe it was like the grandmother or the mother who said when they agreed to, to sell the property, 
insisted this tree be preserved. That was their one stipulation. And of course, their son, Ron Dominguez, ended up working at the park and rose very high up in um, the Disney company. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's why this is called the Dominguez tree. And you can see it. It actually goes through the roof of the queue. Yeah. And they had the build around it, you know, yeah, all that, but it is there. I'm going to say, if you're ever there with uh, anyone from our former Disneyland team, including Michael, Mary Jo, they're always very happy to point out the, mm-hmm. uh, the tree as well as uh, other fascinating uh, plant life around the area. We'll show you where the leprechaun lives. He doesn't live far from from this tree, actually. Okay. Hey, save that for the St. Patrick's Day episode. <laughs> I think we already did a show on him we for did. the Disneyland, <laughs> Disneyland show. Yeah. Now, two weeks after the opening of Disneyland in 1955, Jack Evans suffered a massive heart attack. He was confined to desk work and was never able to return to Disneyland, and he passed away in 1958. Bill stayed on as a consultant after the opening of Disneyland, drawing landscape plans and installing plant materials and supervising the maintenance of the parks, gardens, trees, and landscaping. In 1956, he was named the Director of Landscape Architecture and worked on additions to Disneyland. When Bill was hired as a Disney employee, Royal Disney retroactively made Bill's hire date as 1955. One of his projects was the landscaping for the Matterhorn bobsleds attraction. To add plants to the 1-100th scale reproduction of the Matterhorn, Bill and his team filled a cement bucket with planter mix, added a few plants, a tree, and hung it on the end of a 125-foot boom, along with a gardener, and hoisted it all up about 100 feet into the air. They would then find some place to dump the soil plants and tree, and the gardener would stomp them into place, then go back down on the boom and repeat the process. I can't imagine them doing this today. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they, they, way too much effort. They would uh, most likely just fabricate plastic ones that you would never be able to tell a difference. Oh, so, um, but can you imagine hoisting a a gardener on the boom no, up there not, with a plant material in a bucket? <laughs> not at all. No, it, it, it all would have been 3D printed or something oh, right gosh. along with the mountain. They they were brave, brave people. Yeah. Oh, good for them. Yeah. Bill set up an irrigation and drip system to feed the plants that was made up of a 50-gallon oil drum on top of the Matterhorn that was connected to the irrigation system. The gardeners had filled the drum with fertilizer on a schedule and let it dribble down onto the plants. So that's simple. Just use gravity, you know, to do it. They couldn't use full-size fir or pine trees on the Matterhorn because they would be out of scale. So Bill located some stunted pinion pine trees with very short needles near the Colorado desert that were three to six feet high and in scale with the Matterhorn. And they usually need to be replaced um, every three to four years. Bill and his team faced a challenge with another alpine mountain range in Chepetto's village in the storybook land canal boats. 
For this miniaturized version, they needed plant material with very small leaves that were growing in small two to three inch pots. They planted these in the soil, pots and all, which kept the roots in the pots and created a bonsai effect on the plants, stunting their growth. Now, the submarine show building, submarine voyage show building, is a one-acre reinforced building about the size of a parking garage. Rather than seeing the roof, guests see trees growing on the mounds of sand that had been placed on the roof. When guests rode the people mover back in the day or ride the monorail today, they are moving through a forest that is actually a roof garden. For Tomorrowland, Bill said that Walt wanted a lot of greenery because it adds to the experience. When you ride through the land on the people mover or today the monorail or Utopia, guests have the sense of moving because they are continually passing trees and don't always see what is around the next corner. And that is part of the adventure. That kind of stresses me out. I never really thought about the fact that, yeah, the show building for for the Finding Nemo submarine voyage is just completely uh, covered on top. But I, I'm, I'm sure that it's mm-hmm. safe. It's It's been fine for how long? It's it's, it's reinforced. It's okay. Yeah, reinforced. Yeah. It's it's okay. It'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I do. I, th- I that's why I do like the Utopia. You know, our Utopia because you are going through woods. Yeah, and it's a incredible. Forest and all that. I mean, it's really beautiful. I can't stand the smell of the cars, but um, it's a beautiful. It's just a nice experience driving through. Yeah, it, it's set up there. Uh, that's why it's hard to, you know, tell Walt Disney World people that like, hey, you know, you need, if you go to Disneyland, you need to do their Autopia, like their version of Speedway. It's like mm-hmm. to to them, it makes no sense until you actually get on and you're driving up and down these little hills on feeling like you're a country road or going into the into the woods for the weekend. Like it just has such a different feel to it. It makes it a, a must-do attraction at Disneyland, whereas, you know, similar similar ride vehicle in Walt Disney World, it's like, skip it. You don't need it at all, unless you're with a kid yeah. who wants to drive for the first time. <laughs> yeah, and it's a long, it's a pretty yeah. long attraction compared to the um, Speedway at the Magic yeah. Kingdom. Oh, definitely. A lot longer. And you feel like you get, if you're waiting 20, 30 minutes in line for Autopia, you feel like you get your worth out of it with mm-hmm. with how long that track is. And plenty of rewritability as well, too, depending on uh, which track you get on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It hurts my ankle, so you have to push so hard down on the pedals. <laughs> I mean, uh, the six foot three person here who can barely fit in, but I still love <laughs> yeah. doing it. Yeah. Now, a landscaping art most closely associated with Disney Parks and Bill Evans are the topiaries. We see at Disneyland's It's a Small World and Epcot's Flower and Garden Festival. Walt got the idea after a trip to Europe, where he had seen fine topiary and wanted to add topiary figures to Disneyland. The problem was the plant material normally used to create topiaries is very slow going and can take many years or decades to create the desired shape. Well, Walt was too impatient for that. He told Bill, let's get some topiaries in the park in a year or two. 
Walt wasn't going to wait 20 years. To accelerate the process, Bill obtained plant material of suitable size for the topiary figures. The artists would create illustrations of the figures they wanted. Bill and his team blew these drawings up to full size, then took reinforcing rods and warped them around into the desired shapes, basically building a skeleton of the figure out of steel. Bill and his team then persuaded the plant material to grow to the shape of that skeleton. Each month, they would bend them to the basic shape until they got what they wanted. They were able to meet Walt's request to have topiary figures in the park within two years. Now, the downside of creating topiaries in this method is that they will last about 10 years because the plant material can't be held down indefinitely and will outgrow the skeleton. This requires always having backup topiaries backstage to be brought out. Sometimes backup topiaries will be shipped from Walt Disney World to Disneyland because they grow faster in the Florida climate. So yeah, when they're growing in the traditional European method, um, the topiaries will last for like hundreds of years. Oh, oh wow! But, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I just assumed that they were all kind of the same. But that's no, wild. but but it'll take twenty years to create them. Yeah, you know, it's we all have twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first topiaries created for Disneyland were animal figures from the film Fantasia. For a while, Walt wanted to belt to place the ballerina hippos on rotating turntables so they would look like they were dancing. But that idea was quickly abandoned. I think it would have been cool. In front of Small World, oh, that would have been great. Absolutely. <laughs> if they were all rotating, adding that extra kinetic energy moving mm-hmm. around, that would have been really fantastic. Yeah. Now, the first new land built at Disneyland was New Orleans Square, and the ficus trees that were there on opening day were rescued from Pershing Square in downtown Los Angeles. The city planned to build an underground parking garage and salvaged about two-thirds of the trees for use elsewhere. It was decided that eight of the trees were too big to save. Workers were in the process of cutting down the trees, and Bill arrived after one tree had been chopped down. Bill asked what was going on and was told they had been contracted to demolish and haul away the trees for $150 each. Bill said, okay, I can top that. If you promise to take your chainsaw home and forget about demolishing them, I'll give you $50 a tree. They agreed, and the trees found a new home in New Orleans Square. In 1965, Bill wrote Disneyland World of Flowers, a book dedicated to his brother Jack that was devoted to the park's horticulture because it had attracted so much attention from guests and architects. He also wrote many articles on horticulture and landscaping for horticultural publications. Bill was a fellow of the American Society of Landscape Architects and served on the Board of Trustees for the Los Angeles Arboretum. For more than 25 years, he was a member of the Garden Advisory Board for Sunset Magazine. In 1975, he was forcibly retired, along with other Disney legends like Yale Gracie and Roger Brogy, who had hit the mandatory retirement age of 65 years old. However, he was asked to return as a consultant on the landscape design for Tokyo Disneyland. 
Bill also consulted on the designs for Disney's Polynesian Resort, Discovery Island, Typhoon Lagoon, Disney MGM Studio Park, and many other landscape elements for Walt Disney World. Bill said they had a perfectly miserable experience in the theme park area because of the Florida terrain. As an example, Bill told a story about his wanting to start a tree farm so he could begin producing some of the material they would need. The surveyor he worked with said, There is just a place for it. There is a hill over on the west side that would be just fine. Not many trees on it. So they drove over. Now, there was no road, just extremely poor pasture land and swamp. So when they arrived at the spot, the surveyor said, How do you like that? What do you think of that? Bill replied, where? Why, it's a hill, said the surveyor. Well, the area was made up of six or eight feet of freeboard before you would hit the water table. Bill laughed and said, I'll walk up there, but catch me if I fall. I don't want to roll all the way to the bottom. But this is where he ended up putting the tree farm. To build the Magic Kingdom, they had to lift the elevation of 100 acres, a maximum of 15 feet, and a minimum of 10 feet in order to get some freeboard to build the biggest basement in Florida. To build the site, they had to dig a 250-acre lagoon. Said Bill of the site, If you look at the soil profile in that part of Florida, it's kind of like a Danish pastry. There is a skinny layer of sand on top, and then there's some peat muck. Maybe something else. And underneath all of that, some blue clay. And underneath that, pink clay. And then brown clay. And gray clay. All the colors of the rainbow, but all clay. When you move the earth, you take off this layer and you put that over somewhere else. And this layer on top of that. All of this abominable soil. You could dig a hole in that and fill it with water. It was absolutely impervious to water. You had just as much water in there a week later. When we built Epcot, we were able to convince the engineers that no matter what it cost, it would be a great economy to ignore that kind of source and go and find a sandy source for soil. We had a very congenial environment for the landscaping at Epcot. No clay. So so I assume you you agree with his assessment of uh, the Florida topography there? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's... It, it pretty much is. Uh, it's uh, a lot of clay and a lot of sand as well, too. And it just kind of all gets spread around. And uh, yeah, and, you know, it's it, for some reason, though, it, there's still life finding a way to, to survive on, on that. But uh, I, don't, I don't question it. I just try to make sure it's cut down so that way it doesn't take over me one day. Yeah, yeah. We have here where I live, it's all clay and rock. There's no soil. It's just I have sort of soil just because of all the amendments I've put in for, you know, over 30 years. Exactly. (laughs) Ours is just it's that clay base and then sand and then a topsoil on top of it and you know if nothing's growing then the topsoil kind of just goes away and the sand erodes through it's really no one no one should be living in florida (laughs) well for the opening of walt disney world bill and his team planted sixty thousand flowers shrubs and trees resulting in clearing out the supplies from almost all the nurseries in florida alabama and georgia Bill was instrumental in the selection of plants for Euro Disneyland, 
Disney's Animal Kingdom, and in planning the landscape palette for Hong Kong Disneyland. Hong Kong Disneyland represents the culmination of landscape effort and experience for Bill and his colleagues. They brought in several trees and flowers never before seen in that area of the world. For the first time, Disney landscapers selected species of plants and flowers known mainly for their fragrance because the people of Hong Kong have traditionally held a strong interest in horticulture. When asked about Walt Disney, Bill said, My brother Jack and I took great pride in the fact that Walt would never hover hover over us like he did with the art directors. He really trusted us. One of the amazing things about Walt was that he knew the tremendous contribution landscaping could make. When we were building Disneyland, we used to make a tour of the site every Saturday. Once a week, Walt would hike the whole site. We really thought we had outdone ourselves when we got these big trees for the hub. They were really big trees. Eight tons each and six-foot boxes. Along came Saturday. We had planted them a couple of days earlier, so I thought I would really impress both my bosses, Walt and Admiral Fowler. I think Walt liked those trees. Those were good trees. But his way of liking them was to turn to Joe and say, where did Bill get those bushes? Walt was not given to extravagant praise. He had the best in terms of artists and technicians and engineers. He had the best. They all performed. They all put out for Walt. And it wasn't because he slapped them on the back and said they were doing a great job. I don't think anybody ever heard him say that. You just wanted to do the best you could. Actually, you ended up doing better than you thought you could. You felt supported so you could experiment and take some chances. In 1990, a Disneyland Main Street USA window above the Opera House was dedicated in his honor, and it reads, Evans Gardens, Exotic and Rare Species, Freeway Collections, Established 1910, Morgan Bill Evans, Senior Partner. And the Freeway Collections mentioned is, of course, a nod to the trees he rescued from the bulldozers and transported to the park. In the Magic Kingdom, Bill is listed on a window above the Crystal Arts Shop that reads, You Show Him, Morgan Evans DTS and Tony Virginia Virginia ATS. Tony Virginia was the superintendent of ground maintenance for Walt Disney World when it opened in 1971. There are some Jungle Cruise tributes to Bill Evans. In the Magic Kingdom's Jungle Cruise, Albert Awal relays advice on the rainforest by Skipper Bill of the Congo Connie. In the Skipper Canteen is an office for Skipper Bill in charge of plant studies. In the library of the Skipper Canteen is a book titled Universus Aberibus by B.M. Evans. This references Bill's creation of Latin names for plants and weeds at Disneyland. Outside the Jungle Cruise are planters made from crates, which are labeled Evans Exotic Plant Exporters Limited. And in Trader Sam's Enchanted Tiki Bar is a postcard from a Bill who is stranded in the Congo without an anchor. So have you seen any of these references, Craig? I mean, I feel like I definitely have at one point, especially in... um inside skipper canteen the last time i i was there like i literally took as much time as possible to study absolutely everything around there and take as much photos so i i know i know i would have seen it 
So, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, sometimes it's it just not you looking at it all and absorbing it all in and don't realize you're seeing this stuff that that's pointing out and think like, oh, no, that's that's not a reference to someone, even when it really is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they have so many references in there. Oh, yeah. To the early Imagineers and current ones, too. Yep. So, but but now when you go there, you go to Magic Kingdom, you can look for all these things. You go to Disneyland, look for his window, too. Exactly. So, yep. Now, Bill Evans was named a Disney legend in 1992. I certainly feel that trees are living, breathing individuals, Bill once said. They're alive and respond to the elements. A building doesn't yield to the breeze. I can see the life in the trees by the way they move. We have some giant bamboo in the jungle that grow to a height of 30 or 40 feet. And in the breeze, you get an effect like a ballet dancer. Former WED Imagineering Director of Landscape Design, Paul Comstock, knew Bill for 40 years and said there are at least 30 to 50 plant species now common in the trade that wouldn't be here if Bill and his brother Jack hadn't smuggled them in from Central and South America. Comstock went on to say, Bill defined Imagineer. He also defined gentleman, and by his humble example, a simple comment or a single glance, he taught us what is right and what is wrong. Bill's vast living professional contribution is truly legendary, along with his compassion towards people, plants, and animals. Now, Bill's reputation was worldwide. Imagineer Tony Baxter reported that when he was in Holland on a fact-finding trip, he went to visit the gardens of Kuchenhof, which I'm sure that is not how you pronounce it, and found they had closed for the season. Even when he explained he was from Disney, they wouldn't let him in. Tony then said, Bill Evans sent me. The groundskeeper immediately let him in and gave him a grand tour of all the gardens. Said Marty Scalar, he, meaning Bill, taught generations of landscape architects how to do their jobs with passion, skill, and tender, loving care. In fact, two weeks before his passing in 2002, Bill was walking through the vines and foliage of the Jungle Cruise, checking out the flora and sharing his knowledge with a new generation of horticultural imagineers. Bill's favorite quote was written by Sir Francis Bacon. God Almighty first planted a garden, and indeed it is the purest of human pleasures, without which edifices are but gross handiworks. And we shall ever see that as ages grow to civility and elegance, man comes to build stately sooner than to garden finely, as though gardening were the greater perfection. At the opening of Disneyland in 1955, Walt Disney said, Disneyland will never be completed. It will always continue to grow. Walt was talking about his plans for future attractions, but he could also have been thinking of of the parks, gardens, and trees. It is my hope that when you visit any Disney park, you will appreciate the genius of Bill Evans, who, with his brother, established the principles and practices of Disney landscape design. And now it's time for this week in Disney history. All right. I believe it is my turn to start this week. I actually remembered. (laughs) 
All right. Mine uh, actually takes place not far from where I live. This is February 25th, 1956. Well, you know, we, we talking about, you probably have been hearing in the news about our weather here in California with flooding and hurricane-like conditions and all kinds of mudslides. Well, this was happening in 1955 as well. To the... And in fact, it was so bad that a town called Yuba City basically got wiped out by a huge, huge flood on, and on December 24th, 1955. And it it wiped out the town. Christmas was canceled. And so Walt Disney found out about this. So by on February 25th, 1956, Walt sent his Mouseketeers and some other performers to Yuba City, and they put on a huge show. And this was news. This was major news. Yeah. And um, and he sent Santa Claus. Walt sent um, presents and gifts for the children of Yuba City. And basically, they had Christmas. They got gifts. Um, the Mouseketeers put on the show. Jimmy Dodd and Ron Williams were there as well. And it was huge. And then, you know, and you know, when you see the newsreels for this, you just see the delight on the children's face because their homes were gone, the schools, were gone, everything was gone yeah. in Yuba City. And this was, um, you know, and I believe this was the first show the Musketeers did away from like the studio and Disneyland and things like that. So, um, Anyway, so so for us up here in Northern California, this is still remembered, you know, and is still a significant event that that we will hear about on the news in a few days. There, there'll be one of the news stations will have some sort of a look back on this event. Yeah, um, that's incredible. And all that. So so that is so my much goodwill. Really, really, it was because you know it's. You know, Walt, Walt, if Walt, Walt didn't need to do this, of course, mm-hmm. but um, so that he did was, again, I think it just shows, you know, his heart and his, yeah. the compassion that he had for people. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, really a true statement of who the man was. Mm-hmm. So when when people were in a time of need, delivering and uh, coming through for them to to make people happy, just uh, just. You know, really remarkable. Yep, yep, I agree. So what do you have for us this week? Well, mine's sad, on, uh, but for different reasons. On February 26th of 2006, uh, Walt Disney World lost one of my favorite attractions while I was growing up, and probably a lot of other people's out there, too, that miss it to this day, uh, but Timekeeper permanently oh, closed. Yeah. It was It was already, like, it already had closed for a while, but it it was at that point that it, it finally uh, officially received the the axe, and it, it just such a shame. I mean, I know the video technology definitely was starting to feel dated by that point, being in the uh, you know the the circle vision esque theater the of nine different screens surrounding you that were broadcasted through nine eye, but I, I mean. It, what a what a charming story throughout the entire the entirety of it having robin williams lending his voice to it uh you know 
it definitely something you miss hearing inside inside magic kingdom it just it, it was it was fun and i know that uh i know that people stopped showing up to it but i i don't know i feel i i feel like you know monsters inc laugh floor took over it and i i feel like except when it's not super busy there you could also consider that to be kind of you know not a not a super popular attraction in itself too but nothing nothing about monsters inc laugh floor screams tomorrowland to me where the timekeeper you know while while it definitely had its uh disneyland parrots paris roots in it because i was uh cross with it it just you know it, it still felt like it it belonged in tomorrowland with mm-hmm. the technology with the robotics so uh, a, a sad day in the history of of magic kingdom losing a great attraction to be replaced by one that just has already stayed past its time i agree and it fit into the theme of the future Mm-hmm. And, you know, when they, and one of the things is when they start putting in some of the IPs, especially when they do it in Tomorrowland, it just, the whole theming, the storytelling of the, the land is just sort of, you know, it's gone. Yeah. That's because what, what does Monsters Inc. have to do with the no. concept of Tomorrowland? And especially Absolutely. that Tomorrowland, it was supposed to be a spaceport. Mm-hmm. kind of thing and uh, which i think is sort of was a good route maybe to go with tomorrowland you know yeah, space port of the future uh, that was an interesting yeah. concept and yeah. it's unfortunate they couldn't figure out ways to keep it going especially with properties like wally mm-hmm. and and all that that could have fit into that yeah they I, easily I easily it. could because even like i feel like buzz lightyear space ranger spin fits in there carousel of progress doesn't really but i mean that's you tick off a lot of people if you remove that but for the most part you know it alien encounter even stitch's great escape kind of kind of felt like it remained in there but then monsters inc laugh floor just just destroyed that and timekeeper could have easily been updated and yes, now you I know agree. i know we're still waiting to see the seamless, you know, like uh, Circle Vision film for China, if that's ever going to actually happen one day. But I imagine what it would have been like if if they could have just kept updating it. Um, we would have lost Robin Williams's voice along the way. But uh, I mean, someone else could have taken up the mantle and, and kept this going and and kept the vision of this style of attraction alive. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know what? People would rather sit down too for a little bit rather than have to stand through an attraction. Well, they probably could have dealt with that too, but um, yeah. you know, and you know, they would have replaced Robin Williams with like Josh Gad or yeah. something. Yeah, if no, they what? updated it. <laughs> I, I would have been okay with that. Or God, it, but if they updated it with Aquafina, I would not set foot in that attraction. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have been I mean, you kind of nailed it though. It would be uh it would be Josh Gad as the new Robin Williams and then uh Aquafina as Nine Eye. So Oh gosh. Oh gosh. Maybe I've got I got some phone calls to make after this. You know, that might just get them to bring it back. It that could. pitch. <laughs> But I agree with you. I, I think they could have easily updated it and made it interesting for the current generation. Exactly. Yep. They could have. Yeah. So. 
Oh, well. Anyway, so so anyway, we were talking about the gardens and all that. I, I was thinking of a funny story where um, when the, when our children were little and we'd be going to Disneyland and then, you know, Carol would sort of be ahead of us and then wherever we were going and the kids would be there. Jerry usually looking at the map because he was he was in the maps. So he would be our guide to wherever we were going. And then they would look back and Carol would say, where's your father? Because, and it was always that I was looking at a garden section yeah. of planting and taking photos so I could see the color combinations and, and all of that. So that was, that's just the cool thing about, about going to a Disney park is you can spend a lot of time just looking at the gardens and, and, the, and the flowers yeah. and all that. The one thing I didn't mention too was they were the Bill Evans was the first one to use poinsettias as a bedding plant hmm. because Walt wanted that color um, at Christmas time. Yeah, he wanted those reds and all that. And and Bill actually worked with gardeners and all that, and they came up with a species of poinsettia that had very short stems Hmm. that they could use as bedding plants at Disneyland. And then, you know, now they use it at all the Disney parks, you know, at Christmas time. Yeah. And it makes such a huge difference to the atmosphere Mm -hmm. uh, around it when, when it, when it is Christmas time. So that's, that's uh, brilliant. I'm, I'm so happy that that happened. I, I, I just, you know, I know there's plenty of theme parks out there that are beautiful and landscaped very well. That's just, you know, that's the Disneyland inspiration overall that uh, it set the standard for how how theme parks need to look in the future and and continue on. So there's lots of places that do it right. But it's still something about about Disney. And, you know, I love entering disneyland early in the morning rope dropping and you'll still see the gardener switching out flowers mm-hmm. they'll they'll have them right there with them and if there's one that just doesn't quite look up to snuff they'll they'll rip it out and plant a new one right in there and like i i love it because it always you walk in and you always feel like it's it's a perfect day that like wow they just they've they've kept and maintain these plants so, so well. And I, I think even on a greater example of it is, is Florida, because believe it or not, for everyone who, who drives onto Walt Disney World property and sees the, the, all the green grass as you're driving on the highways and all the road system around and then, you know, make it to the parks and see the same lush, uh, landscapes, greenery from the grass, the foliage, like that's it. It's not normal. We have a lot of green around Florida, uh, but like uh, as a perfect example right now, you drive onto Walt Disney World property and it's still pretty green all around. But if you come out to my house, it's it's completely dead because we've been we've been going through a drought here for a while. And so, you know, the it, who knows if Disneyland wasn't. Uh, done so well with the landscaping maybe when it came to walt disney world it wouldn't be the oasis that it is the the bubble that literally defies florida's weather and the entire environment so uh it it helps transport you to the magic so i mm-hmm. can't i i it as great as the rides are and smells and sounds there is something about the landscaping that 
truly does set Disney apart and, and makes it so special, even if you're not recognizing it. Oh, I agree. I agree. And like a place like Animal Kingdom or um, Epcot, I can walk around there and not go on attractions, but just look at all the plants and flowers and things like that, especially at Flower and Garden Festival. Yeah. I mean, so. yeah, they, they made an entire festival because they knew how well <laughs> they could do it. And choosing that perfect time of year, it's just it lights up Epcot like like nothing else. So, uh, it's, you know, uh, other people do it really well, too. But Disney has has mastered it. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, I'm always disappointed because, you know, I like gardening and all that. And I think, gosh, why can't my garden beds look like <laughs> Disneyland's? And of course, some of it is my soil. We talked about that already. But of course, I don't replace a plant every few days because it's wilting, because the bloom is gone. You know, I just don't quite have those funds or that time. So, you know, and I have to keep telling myself that, that, you know, I I just don't have the resources they do at Disneyland or Walt Disney World. That's like we we do not garden at our home because everything we buy instantly dies. Uh, it just you know we'll if we buy a new hanging plant, even with like watering it, you know, it'll get too sunny and it'll it'll dry out too often and die. Or we'll go through a rainy patch where it gets too much water. It just we cannot control anything. The only stuff that we can keep alive are the ones that we're like we get frustrated with and say I'm done with it. Just set it on the ground off to the side, and then all of a sudden it'll start thriving (laughs) it's like (laughs) i don't i don't understand it but you know if i could find a way to do that with vegetables so i could have fresh vegetables at my house that would be perfect yeah now i i don't know since we're talking about flower garden festival a bit okay i it came up in my news feed and i don't know if this is true or not because there's some sites i question their veracity and i didn't i don't think i saw it in the Diz site so that's why i'm questioning it there's some epcot topiary controversy where they're saying and i think it was the maribel topiary where they're saying it wasn't a real topiary it was f- like styrofoam that they had sprayed with some greenery stuff hmm. and because they, apparently in the winds or something it got damaged and so it was showing through. Have I, you heard anything about that? You know, I I haven't heard. I haven't heard about it this year. I haven't been over to like see some of the topiaries that they've started to put out. And I don't remember that happening last year. But I will say, uh, the the Encanto topiaries. Uh, you know, they always looked a little too perfect uh, to me. Um, you know, it's there. There are definitely topiaries that that sometimes look a little bit off, and and the the Mirabelle one and Kanto ones definitely fit that uh, bill for me. So I'm not saying that that's true but i could also believe it um you know some sometimes you look at it and you're like you're, yeah that's definitely a topiary like the lion king ones those mm-hmm. you know those are even as big as they are they're still grown they're still there there's a lot of love that goes into those but uh, sometimes i look at some of the disney topiaries and I'm like something's off about these they don't they almost look too good that they don't feel real so it wouldn't well, surprise me I hope they're not cutting 
costs by creating fake topiaries. I mean, that would be horrible. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's something real with it, but um, I it would not surprise me if, you know, they they want to achieve the same look and then have a little bit with it. But, you know, it's it's not going to be able to get entered into the the Rose Parade and <laughs> and prove that it's it's all made of uh, some organic materials. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know. That's that's just my speculation. I've always kind of thought there was some stuff off about some of it. So it, I could be wrong. Other people on the Internet could be wrong, too. But it also it wouldn't surprise me if it was right. Yeah. No. Now, I wanted to get your thoughts on the news. This was just announced, I think, like the day before recording. At least I became aware of it. I know you are a collector of physical media. I am starting to because as I look for movies on streaming, mm-hmm. they are not there anywhere to be found. Even though we were all told years ago, any movie you want is always going to be available on streaming. But Disney's offloading its physical media production and distribution to Sony and shutting down the Disney Movie Club, which I was always said I'm going to join. And now, oh, well. (laughs) Michael, last week, at the beginning of last week, I literally was on my phone getting ready to sign up for it. Like I just out of I always told myself the same thing. I'm like, I'm gonna get it one day. I'm gonna get it, and it's like I don't have I didn't have the money for it, and that's always what it came up with. Like I know if you stayed with it long enough, then and took advantage of some of their deals, like with with Blu-rays, you could get it to the point where you're spending like on average twelve dollars a Blu-ray, and there are so many exclusive titles that it kind it, it was really you could make it worth it. And I, I don't know. Last week I was just like, you know, I, 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 I'm going to regret one day if they ever start retiring titles. And I, I know what else spurred it on is that I'm still so frustrated that we have, um, we have make my music on Disney plus, but not melody time. Mm-hmm. And like, I just want to watch. I want to watch the the one animated feature that's not on Disney Plus. So I was like, let me maybe I'll finally do it and sign up because I know I want to get the three Caballeros Saludos Amigos pack and Black Cauldron, some of the other ones I haven't had. And then I just, you know, I walked away from it, didn't didn't go back to it, didn't didn't pull the trigger on it. And the news came out. The first thing I did was rush to try to sign up. And of course, they blocked everyone from signing up right away mm. because anyone who's stuck with it now they're offloading they're offloading blu-rays for like 10 or 15 dollars and you know adding doing special giveaways and added on bonuses and so if you're a member you know you're you're gonna make out here with in the last little bit of it but i i'm so disappointed in it because Again, maybe I'm part of the problem that I never signed up when I said I was going to, but I I saw the value in it. I do see a value in physical media. Um, I don't. It's great that Sony's taking over, but it's still going to be Walt Disney deciding what ends up going through yeah. that route. I mean, yeah. they're just they're producing and and uh, and you know putting them out there for the world. It's it's still Disney to decide and. If they're shuttering Movie Club, if if they never thought some of these titles were worthwhile to get a, a full release and were hidden on a Movie Club before, then I don't think now that Sony's taking over some of the overhead on this that all of a sudden 
it's going to change anything. So I'm, I was hopeful for a world where we would maybe one day have 4K releases of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Treasure Island, Swiss Family Robinson, other Disney classics. But I, I, it's, it's a dark day for Disney home entertainment. I agree. I was hoping Sony would then take over Disney Movie Club. But, yeah, um, yeah but no. And, uh, no and, I think uh, this is a shame because they had all those exclusives on there that so we'll, never, we'll never get onto Disney+. Plus. Yeah, it's it just so, so many. And you know what? I, I'm, again, I'm not in the room for it, though, so I'm being a little bit skeptical with it. I'm being I'm assuming the worst. It could be a thing where, you know, Sony has control and they say like, OK, yeah, Disney just approved this and and we want to put it out. It could be a thing where, you know, maybe maybe it's like more third parties can come in. Maybe we start getting more criterion releases so far. The only thing in the Disney universe that's received a criterion release is uh Wally. And so there's never been a Disney movie that's received it. Uh, just, just Pixar. So I'm hoping that maybe that opens up the door for, for more specialty releases like that, but there's just still so much that's not been released physical. That's not, released on disney plus i mean there's there's a lot of hd versions of movies that are on uh on like itunes and and you know other other digital retail outlets like that but again in the fine print for all those they flat out tell you that they could be removed at any point in time and you can lose access to it so the only thing that is safe is having a physical copy that you keep in good condition and you know you will always have it as long as you always have a player and that's that's it yeah oh well, i should have signed up for disney movie club last year and i almost did it had the site open and i don't know why i didn't i it's just i procrastinate it's yeah it's a terrible thing i have yeah. oh well oh i know i i do have i have one friend that's being nice and is offering to get me like a couple of the little things that I want. I, I will be honest. I already went on eBay and like in the, before people had a chance to change the prices on some of them, I went in and, and cleaned some of them up that I knew I wanted. So I, I'm, I'm at the point where I, I have like two or three that I'm like, if I get these, I can be content with, you know, not having, uh, you know, not having some of the weirder, movies on on blu-ray i i can be okay with that but i want i just i wanted the staples at the very yeah. least in the the highest quality but a, a lot of that too is just me being nervous because i don't ever see a day and age in which Twenty Thousand leagues or swiss family robinson or old yellers pulled off of disney plus i i think those will will stay uh otherwise whoever is the ceo whoever's in charge of that division they're gonna hear from people because that's you know they people are okay with the classics that you know some of the classics that aren't on there being missing because they don't know what they're missing but the ones that they grew up with and still watch and see if they ever try to take those off there's gonna be there's gonna be an uproar yeah yeah i agree with you i'll have to see if i have melody time on dvd so yeah, I, I didn't I own do. it on DVD either, so I I needed I needed it, so I got it. <laughs> oh, good, good, okay, all righty. Well, we'll see what what Sony does with this. So. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I used several uh, references in in planning for this um, episode, some books and magazines, well, books I used. Um, Walt Disney's um, Imagineering Legends and the Genesis of Disney Theme Parks by Jeff Curdy. Disneyland World of Flowers by Morgan Evans. And it was so funny how I got this book because this is the first edition book that he wrote is that um, Carol was actually through somebody, she was getting me some out of print books years and years and years ago. And so uh, the, the, I believe it was a lady said, well, I have this other book. Would you just like it? And so Carol asked me and I, and it was this one. I said, absolutely. And I said, how much is it? And the lady said, oh, well, the binding is a bit damaged, so I'll just give it to you. Yeah, and what a deal. I know. And I thought, oh, my gosh. So um, so anyway, so, yeah, so this is an absolutely wonderful book. Yeah. I did look it up while you were uh, – after you mentioned it there. And, uh, of course, there's only, like, one copy on that you can get through, like, resellers like Amazon for 150 so it's expensive. But someone did upload the pages to the uh, Internet Archive uh, way back machine. So um, if you if you just search the book in Google, you can at least you know you you can see the the pictures of that book very very well. The text is a little bit harder to read, uh, but I, I I scrolled through a little bit of it while while we were recording. I'm like, wow, this is if you can get this book in your collection in good condition, you you've got a gem. Yeah, because he goes through every single land. Yeah. of Disneyland and talks about the trees and the plants and how he got them and why he used the different varieties in each of the, you know, of trees or whatever it was in each of the land. And, and he talks about how they all tell the story of that land. I mean, it's a really wonderful, wonderful book. Yeah. yeah. So, also, The Secrets of Disney's Glorious Gardens by Kevin Markey. Walt's People, Volume 5, edited by D.D.A. Um, Gez. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, even though I've heard it a million times. This Walt's People series is wonderful. I think there are close to like 30 volumes now. What it is, is it's a collection of interviews that different people have done with Disney artists um, over time. And this one, Volume 5, had an interview of Bill Evans by our late dear friend Jim Corcus yeah. in there. And it was, it was a very good interview because there's not a lot of interviews of Bill Evans out there. Um, some websites and articles I used. Um, Morgan Bill Evans for the Cultural Landscape Foundation. The D23.com entry on Bill Evans. Um, Bill Evans, Walt's Green Thumb. This is, was for waltzfolly.com. Bill Evans' um, entry on the Jungle Cruise Wiki. Um, on Variety.com, the obituary for um, Morgan Bill Evans. Uh, Disney Park Landscape, this um, article by the Society of Architectural Historians. Horticultural Heritage by Wade Sampson for Mouse Planet. As I mentioned last week, Wade Sampson was the pen name. Uh, for a while that Jim Corcus used when writing yeah. for Mouse Planet. And The Trees of Disneyland by Jim Denning. He's the author of Walt's Disneyland. So, um, oh, also, I forgot to, also there is a video um, on um, 
forgot to include it in here, so I'm going to have to send it to you, Craig. Let me. Okay. But it is, again, one of those wonderful Disney family album entries on Disneyland designers. And they, and you get to meet John Hench, Herb Ryman, Bill Evans, and Tony Baxter in there. So if you want to see and hear from Bill Evans, um, you can in this video. So he is, uh, and he talks about how he created the topiaries for, oh, for, wow. um, it's a small world as part of it in there. And also the jungle cruise, how he created the jungle in so there. Cool. So it is absolutely wonderful. That's great. Yeah. So, so Craig will include these links to these resources in our episode description. I'm still getting emails from folks asking, how, where do they find these links? And all I can sort of say is I, I find them pretty easily when I click on the episode descriptions. I go into the, um, the link you send out, Craig, yes. that comes through my podcast links, and it's it's right there. You'll see them yep. all listed. Just expand it. Exactly. And I mean, I, d- I don't know how it works on every single platform because like, obviously, I don't have, um, you know, I, I don't have an Android phone, so I can't see how it would appear through apps that are that are only used there. I can only see it through like what I use. But um, if you you follow us on social media, you see uh, you see the link go out there, you'll be able to to click on the links through that. Um, and then with like Apple podcasts, uh, for the most part, unless I mess up any, any part of it, uh, you should like, if you click on like, you know, you see the episode pop up in your feed. Um, you know, you can always do like the click over the three little dots and go to the episode. And when you, you do that, then it will show you every single thing that Michael mentions. And uh, if there's a clickable link with it, it'll be available there. So it should just be that easy with everything. But uh, you know what? If I, I always give my email address at the, the end of each episode, if you have any other issues, let me know. <laughs> Okay, thank you. So, and so, um, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Well, they can connect with me uh, by emailing me, <laughs> Craig at DisneyInfo.com. Uh, you can connect with me uh, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Teleclaster, and find me on all the different shows on the Dis, Un- Dis Unlimited Podcast Network. Almost did it uh, twice in a month. Uh, Michael, what about you? <laughs> you can email me at michaelbowling at disneyinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm michaelbowling-connectingwithwalt. Instagram, michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connectingwalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our episode description. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.